Hello and welcome back to the theater. For this episode, we continue our exploration of the shocking world of Victorian medicine. But before that, I'd like to voice my thanks for all of the listener support in the view of the last couple years. Seeing as how we're wrapping up another year, and this is the last episode of Mania's second season, I want to thank all of my listeners, whether you've been following me from the beginning or are just now joining us. The support that I've gotten from this show has given me a community and a confidence in my writing that I wasn't sure I would ever get. When I first started Mania, I was managing a coffee house. Then, just before COVID began, I began working at a mortuary, both to enrich my sensibilities as a horror writer, but also in the hopes of seeking out a depth of perspective regarding death, disease, and the darker themes that often accompany the stories that you hear on this show. After a year in the funeral industry, I took the plunge to subsist on creative work. Since then, I've pursued circus arts, I've performed, i finished a book, and I have sought to find a balance between these two artistic disciplines. With the help of my Patreon, Astrid and I were able to launch our online shop, further deepening the Grimm family's roots in the niche of gothic art. Without the support of this community, none of this would have been possible. First and foremost, Mania is about breathing life into historical stories that seldom see the light of day. It is a celebration of dark art, villains, and the surreal fragments of history left for us to explore through the drama of fiction. So if you'd like to contribute to this project, you're welcome to subscribe and join our family over at patreon.com forward slash harlequin grim. And with that, let's start the show. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and you are listening to the Mania Podcast. If you've ever had the experience of viewing an autopsy, as I have, you are probably familiar with a surreal feeling that just washes over you. At least that's what it was like for me. It's a feeling of awe, perhaps even disbelief. When we think of people, oftentimes we think of them as an idea or a concept. Saying the person's name feels synonymous with speaking of their soul all at once conjuring our total perception of that individual. But, seeing a body pried open, and that delicate perspective starts to break down. For me, I start to entertain the notion that we are but complex, fleshy machines, gifted with consciousness, an equally perplexing idea. But unlike consciousness, we can clearly see, in all of its morbid beauty, the bones, the organs, the layers of fat, arteries and veins, making it all possible. One begins to wonder where the body starts and the spirit begins if such a thing exists. It's strange to look at a freshly sawed open skull, to take a peek at the brain that somehow contains all that somebody was or ever could be. And one can only hope that somehow it is not locked away in darkness forever once the heart stops beating. We can only imagine, therefore, how singularly exciting it was for our Victorian ancestors conducting surgeries and operations that were groundbreaking for the times, to venture into parts of the body previously thought to be too dangerous to explore on a living subject. For our first account of Victorian surgery, we focus on an organ that has been an evergreen metaphor in poetry, the locus of our foulest, most burning hatred, as well as our ability to love and sacrifice selflessly. I am speaking, of course, of the heart. So let's introduce our doctor. Elias Samuel Cooper, born in 1820, was a surgeon in San Francisco who slept with a Latin motto displayed over his bed. It translates into, 
No Day Without a Line, ascribed to the Greek painter Apelles, which illustrates his daily dedication to art. Much like the phrase carpe diem, it was a reminder to work on his craft every day. According to accounts of Cooper, he slept a mere four hours every night. Such was his burning desire to cram as much meaning and work into his brief existence. But like many passionate people, Cooper's personality wasn't always to his benefit. He was often alienated by his colleagues, was regularly fighting allegations against him in court, and was suspected of robbing graves in order to obtain cadavers for his anatomy classes. As this was in the mid-1800s, this wasn't altogether too uncommon. Many anatomists used what were called resurrectionists, or professional grave robbers, in order to pursue their research or provide subjects for their students. Mania actually covered two historical instances of this in the episode The Art of Resurrection from Season 1 and Creating Cadavers, the very first episode in this season. But for all of the corpses he may have desecrated, Cooper pioneered the use of chloroform and the cesarean section and performed some absolutely incredible operations. It's difficult to say how many lives he saved and bettered through his work. After all, he even founded the Stanford Medical School. But the story we are interested in today is what Cooper regards as the most difficult operation of his career. At the age of 25, one Mr. B.T. Beale was feeling rather bored, and so he and his friends resolved to, quote, burst an old gun and accordingly loaded it with 18 inches of powder to which they connected a slow match and then endeavored to seek security by flight. So I suppose this stimulating enterprise of exploding an old gun was the Victorians' version of jackass, or the equivalent of a couple teenagers strapping fireworks together in a desert and seeing what happens when they go off all at once. Unfortunately for Beale, a brisk wind ignited the powder much quicker than he anticipated, causing the gun to explode before they could retreat to cover. A slug of iron had been driven into the gun as a temporary breech pin. It was this piece of shrapnel which was expelled from the eruption, striking Mr. Beale in the left side below his armpit. It fractured his sixth rib, entered his chest, and lodged itself beneath his heart on his vertebral column. Perhaps more astonishing than these men's idea of a fun afternoon activity is the fact that this slug remained in his body for 74 days until the operation. Preparing for Beale's surgery, Dr. Cooper had a bizarre moment which he would later call a premonition. While carefully selecting instruments, he felt compelled to pick up a pair of, quote, awkward and ungainly forceps, designed specifically for removing bladder stones. Without much consideration, he slipped the forceps into his pocket and made for the operating theater. The surgery would take place on April 9th of 1857. By this time, the patient's left lung had lost its function, and his chest had accumulated a great deal of pus. When he came to the infirmary on April 8th, he had such severe bouts of suffocation, Cooper was doubtful he'd even survive the night. When it was time to operate, the patient was placed on his right side and an incision of three inches long was made. In the account, it does not specify exactly where this incision was, though we can infer it was near the original wound. What Cooper discovered was that one rib was broken and in a state of utter decay, so he then enlarged the incision to encompass the original wound pausing to tie three arteries that had begun to bleed. Having done that, he cleaned the wound and began the search for the breech pin. Much to our horror, the patient was fully conscious during all of this and had no anesthetic. 
Even though anesthesia was widely used by 1857, Cooper decided against it, fearing that the chloroform would depress the patient's already weak respiratory function. Still struggling to find the breech pin, a portion of the sixth rib was removed, followed by 10 ounces of blood from a cyst. Once more, Cooper began probing around the patient's heart for this slug of iron, failing once again. But with air already filling up the patient's chest cavity, Cooper figured not much more harm could be done, and so removed portions of the fifth and seventh rib with another portion of the sixth to give him enough room to continue this search. Keep in mind, after whole sections of his ribs were pried out, Cooper rummaged around for a piece of metal in this patient's thorax, and even still, the patient was fully conscious and without anesthesia. I'm not sure that it actually gets much more Victorian than this. With the patient rapidly sinking as more cysts and pus-filled scar tissues were ruptured, only then was brandy administered to keep him awake. After more purulent matter was discharged from structures near the wound, the left lung just completely collapsed. But with more brandy, the patient was revived, keeping him fully aware for every moment of that search. Cooper went so far as to reach in with his fingers, placing them around the patient's heart, feeling its distinct pulses. But even then, he failed to find the iron slug. I mean, just, just imagine somebody quite literally holding your beating heart in their hand. As the search went on and the patient's spirits began to rapidly deteriorate, a small, small dose of chloroform was administered as a final resort, but only enough to produce a light sedation. At last, Cooper struck his probe through a tiny hole between the largest blood vessel in the body and the heart, finding the slug lodged therein. He tried repeatedly, vainly, to grab it and failed each time. Every instrument that was handed by his assistant fell short just as spectacularly, until finally, Cooper remembered the instrument he'd placed in his pocket on the way to the operating theater, and only with these forceps was he able to extract the breech pin from the patient's chest. All in all, the operation is thought to have taken a total of nearly two hours. Cooper's accomplishment cannot be overstated. Conducting a surgery like this without an x-ray to determine the location of the object, and managing to avoid rupturing any of the sensitive blood vessels that are in that area, is an absolutely incredible feat. And to think that the patient was able to remain still enough throughout this process, the majority of it spent without anesthesia, is also a testament to the incredible resilience of these Victorian characters. Five years later, Mr. Beale got married and started a family, and he made a remarkable full recovery. But what's perhaps only a shade more impressive than an unprecedented surgery done by a professional is an emergency one conducted on a ship by a sailor. This one comes from a journal called The Scalpel, aimed at both lay people and professionals, from which we find this story published in 1853. Edward T. Hinckley was the mate of James L. Nye, captain of a ship called the Andrews. The ship would later have an unfortunate clash with a sperm whale, much like in the story Moby Dick, but it was an event just two days earlier which has solidified its place in the annals of Victorian medical history. While sailing off the Galapagos Islands, one of the mates became mutinous, starting something of a duel with Captain Nye. During the fight, Nye suffered a gash from the hinge of his jaw all the way down to his collarbone. The wound was inflicted by a knife, 
thrust down with sheer fatal intent. The crew had been watching all the while. Instantly, Hinkley rushed to the aid of his captain, seizing the mutineer and throwing him to the rest of the crew before tending to his captain's wound. It was noted that a well of dark blood began to seep from the captain's neck, indicating that it was a vein instead of an artery that was hit, but given the severity, it was still very serious and likely that he would bleed out within just a few minutes. Hinkley, as loyal as he was crafty, immediately thrust his fingers into the flap of the wound. With his thumb on the clavicle, he pinched at whatever he found until the bleeding ceased. With the captain's life pinched literally between his fingers, Hinkley endeavored to find precisely which vessel was the cause of the bleeding. The following is a direct quotation. I found my fingers passed under something running in the same course with the bone. This I slowly endeavored to draw up out of the wound, so as to see if it was not the blood vessel. Finding it give a little, I slowly pulled it up with one finger. When I was pulling it up, the captain, the captain groaned terribly, but I went on, because I knew I could do nothing else. I was astonished and very glad to see there were two vessels as I supposed them to be, one behind the other. This description led anatomists to identify the cut vein as a subclavian, beside its associated artery, which are found beneath the clavicle. Not knowing what to do, Hinckley recalled the many times that he'd sewn flesh shut on superficial wounds, and took to stitching the subclavian vein together with five very tiny stitches. Keep in mind, Hinckley is doing all of this while crew members crowd the area, with the ship at sea bobbing up and down. Unbeknownst to the mate, Hinckley was using what is referred to as an interrupted suture technique, where each stitch is separate from its neighbor. Fourteen days following his handiwork, the strings were found loose in the wound, and the vein as well as the rest of his neck had healed up, just like any cut. It wouldn't be until the early 20th century that a surgeon actually succeeded in joining the two ends of a completely severed vessel. Even a specialist by today's standards would be absolutely astounded by Hinckley's handiwork with the old suture, seeing as how he had fairly limited to no training, and the operation was conducted on a moving ship following a heated mutiny. In the previous episode, it was mentioned that occasionally surgeries were conducted out of a medical hubris rather than the patient's true best interests. So to make good on that, we descend into the year 1831, following a young man from China by the name of Hu Lu, whose passage to London was paid for by a doctor at the first Western hospital in China. The hospital's founder, Dr. Thomas Richardson College, admitted that Lu's condition was beyond his expertise and so sent him on his way to London. Lou's condition was extraordinary, in the worst of ways. His scrotum had swollen to monstrous proportions, uh, which was initially diagnosed as elephantiasis. However, it could also just have been a massive tumor. And no, I probably didn't pronounce that right. Uh, Lou was bound for Guy's Hospital in London with a letter of introduction to the renowned surgeon Sir Astley Cooper. Shortly after his arrival, uh, newspaper headlines were already covering the story, citing the tumor at a whopping 56 pounds. It had started growing 10 years earlier at the age of 22, but by the time of the operation, it was four feet. This thing was four feet in circumference, uh, hanging from this man's abdomen between the navel and the anus. So that's super unfortunate. 
But surprisingly enough, other than having to adjust his walk, uh, Lou didn't have any physical symptoms really. He appeared to be in good health and spirits and had a great appetite. At this point, it may have been a poignant time to pose the question whether surgery was necessary at all, given the risks. Of course, Lou's quality of life would be tremendously increased um, by having the tumor removed, but the procedure itself was life-threatening. But I guess the doctors didn't, didn't ponder that question too long, because on the day of the operation, there was a crowd of 680 people, so large that they moved the operation from a smaller chamber and into the operating theater. Charles Aston Key, a former pupil of Sir Astley Cooper, would be taking the lead. The operation itself would be a ferocious trial of nearly two hours. Without any anesthetic, Lou had to endure three large incisions, forming flaps of muscle and skin, which would hopefully be used to cover the hole left when the growth had been removed. At first, the surgeons were hoping to spare Lou's genitals, but as the operation went on and Lou went in and out of consciousness, the risk of dying from shock or blood loss became just too real. And so any measure they could take to expedite the process was taken. One primary reason for the length of the operation was Lou's stamina. The patient was offered brief intervals of rest between the excruciating pain, but every cut, every tied blood vessel to staunch the bleeding were tremendous strikes against his incredible resolve. In an age when surgeons prided themselves on swift amputations, such a protracted operation was considered something of a nightmare. So during the last half hour, Lou slipped into a deeper unconsciousness. The doctors tried everything in their books. Uh, they provided warmth and friction to his extremities. They injected brandy and water into his stomach and then ultimately gave him a transfusion of blood that was six ounces. Uh, a lot of people don't think that there was blood transfusions back then, but curiously enough, there were. But in those times, they were seen as something of a Hail Mary, you know, as a real last-ditch effort, because the Victorians knew that transfusions worked sometimes, but the mechanics of it were mysterious to them. They didn't, they didn't, they weren't able to determine when a donor and a recipient were compatible. They hadn't quite figured out the mechanics of um, blood types just yet. So gradually and steadily, Lou's heartbeat sunk terribly low until a few final weak breaths escaped him, and our patient, unfortunately, was no more. Though the surgeon's attempts were applauded in medical journals, one editorial was extremely critical of both the elongated procedure as well as the, quote, obnoxious atmosphere caused by the audience of more than 600 spectators, of which, I will say, some of them were so eager to donate their blood to the patient and be a part of the process. Uh, one surgeon even wrote, Modern surgery is a vampire which feasts on human blood. Sounds like a very modern quotation. I like it. He then continued his scathing attack, saying, I trust that nature was more merciful than man, and from the extremity of his sufferings formed a veil of oblivion, which rendered this unfortunate being at least partially insensible to his agonies. I think that this operation could neither advance the science of surgery nor be otherwise beneficial to the human race, that it was neither sanctioned by reason nor warranted by experience. Man, can you imagine if the drama and the politics that we had were conducted and spoken in such a way as these people spoke? There's an elegance to it. I love that line. I, I trust that nature was more merciful than man in this instance, right? It's such a beautiful line. It was neither sanctioned by reason nor warranted by experience. There's just a poetry, even when they're just slamming each other in the newspapers. I, I, I digress. Okay, but the death of Hulu would not entirely be in vain. It brought on a period of reflection for the English medical profession and is said to have hastened the end 
of the quote heroic era of surgery when such bold interventions were valued perhaps for their dramatic impact rather than their effect on the patient. We hold the experience of these intrepid Victorian pioneers of anatomy and medicine and every waking moment of fearlessness in the face of common maladies in the modern world, what so previously haunted and killed scores of those before us. Their dedication is alive today, and stories like these revealing to us that sometimes the cost of a luxury may be nightmares beyond our reckoning. One can only hope that in retelling their stories, we honor their suffering, their courage, and carry that into our own lives. Where there is darkness, we may dig for our own bravery to see through it. Where there is pain, the resolve to discover the source and excise it. And where there is tragedy, like this, to know what lessons it might teach us. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Mania. This has been Harlequin Grimm, wishing you the only very best. Halloween.